Section 16 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1909-1912. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address. William H. Taft, December 3, 1912. Part 3. The White House. December 19, 1912. To the Senate and House of Representatives. This is the third of a series of messages in which I have brought to the attention of the Congress the important transactions of the government in each of its departments during the last year and have discussed needed reforms. I recommend the adoption of legislation which shall make it the duty of heads of departments, the members of the President's Cabinet, at convenient times to attend the session of the House and the Senate which shall provide seats for them in each house, and give them the opportunity to take part in all discussions and to answer questions of which they have had due notice. The rigid holding apart of the executive and the legislative branches of this government has not worked for the great advantage of either. There has been much lost motion in the machinery due to the lack of cooperation and interchange of views face-to-face between the representatives of the executive and the members of the two legislative branches of the government. It was never intended that they should be separated in the sense of not being in constant effective touch and relationship to each other. The legislative and the executive each performs its own appropriate function, but these functions must be coordinated. Time and time again, Debates have risen in each house upon issues which the information of a particular department head would have enabled him, if present, to end at once by a simple explanation or statement. Time and time again, a forceful and earnest presentation of facts and arguments by the representative of the executive whose duty it is to enforce the law would have brought about a useful reform by amendment, which, in the absence of such a statement, has failed of passage. I do not think I am mistaken in saying that the presence of the members of the cabinet on the floor of each house would greatly contribute to the enactment of beneficial legislation, nor would this in any degree deprive either the legislative or the executive of the independence which separation of the two branches has been intended to promote. It would only facilitate their cooperation in the public interest. On the other hand, I am sure that the necessity and duty imposed upon department heads of appearing in each house and in answer to searching questions, of rendering upon their feet an account of what they have done, or what has been done by the administration, will spur each member of the cabinet to closer attention to the details of his department, to greater familiarity with its needs, and to greater care to avoid the just criticism which the answers brought out in questions put and discussions arising between the members of either house and the members of the cabinet may properly evoke. Objection is made that the members of the administration, having no vote, could exercise no power on the floor of the house, and could not assume that attitude of authority and control which the English parliamentary government have, and which enables them to meet the responsibilities the English system thrusts upon them. I agree that in certain respects, it would be more satisfactory if members of the cabinet could at the same time be members of both houses, with voting power. 
but this is impossible under our system. And while a lack of this feature may detract from the influence of the department chiefs, it will not prevent the good results which I have described above, both in the matter of legislation and in the matter of administration. The enactment of such a law would be quite within the power of Congress, without constitutional amendment, and it has such possibilities of usefulness that we might well make the experiment, and if we are disappointed, the misstep can be easily retracted by a repeal of the enabling legislation. This is not a new proposition. In the House of Representatives, in the 38th Congress, the proposition was referred to a select committee of seven members. The committee made an extensive report and urged the adoption of the reform. The report showed that our history had not been without illustration of the necessity and the examples of the practice by pointing out that, in early days, secretaries were repeatedly called to the presence of either house for consultation, advice, and information. It also referred to remarks of Mr. Justice Story in his Commentaries on the Constitution, in which he urgently presented the wisdom of such a change. The report is to be found in Volume 1 of the Reports of Committees of the First Session of the 38th Congress, April 6, 1864. Again, on February 4, 1881, a select committee of the Senate recommended the passage of a similar bill and made a report, in which, while approving the separation of the three branches, the executive, legislative, and judicial, they point out as a reason for the proposed change that although having a separate existence, the branches are to cooperate each with the other, as the different members of the human body must cooperate with each other in order to form the figure and perform the duties of a perfect man. The report concluded as follows. This system will require the selection of the strongest men to be heads of departments, and will require them to be well equipped with the knowledge of their offices. It will also require the strongest men to be the leaders of Congress and participate in debate. It will bring these strong men in contact, perhaps into conflict, to advance the public wheel, and thus stimulate their abilities and their efforts, and will thus assuredly result to the good of the country. If it should appear by actual experience that the heads of departments in fact have not time to perform the additional duty imposed on them by this bill, the force in their offices should be increased or the duties devolving on them personally should be diminished. An undersecretary should be appointed to whom could be confided that routine of administration which requires only order and accuracy. The principal officers could then confine their attention to those duties which require wise discretion and intellectual activity. Thus, they would have an abundance of time for their duties under this bill. Indeed, your committee believes that the public interest would be subserved if the secretaries were relieved of the harassing cares of distributing clerkships and closely supervising the mere machinery of the departments. Your committee believes that the adoption of this bill and the effective execution of its provisions will be the first step towards a sound civil service reform, which will secure a larger wisdom in the adoption of policies and a better system in their execution. Signed, George H. Pendleton, W.B. Allison, D.W. Voorhees, J.G. Blaine, M.C. Butler, John J. Ingalls, O.H. Platt, J.T. Farley. It would be difficult to mention the names of higher authority in the practical knowledge of our government, 
those which are appended to this report. The Postal Savings Bank System has been extended so that it now includes 4,004 fourth-class post offices, as well as 645 branch offices and stations in the larger cities. There are now 12,812 depositories at which patrons of the system may open accounts. The number of depositors is 300,000, and the amount of their deposits is approximately $28 million, not including $1,314,140, which has been withdrawn by depositors for the purpose of buying postal savings bonds. Experience demonstrates the value of dispensing with the passbook and introducing in its place a certificate of deposit. The gross income of the postal savings system for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1913, will amount to $700,000, and the interest payable to depositors to $300,000. The cost of supplies, equipment, and salaries is $700,000. It thus appears that the system lacks $300,000 a year of paying interest and expenses. It is estimated, however, that when the deposits have reached the sum of $50 million, which at the present rate they soon will do, the system will be self-sustaining. By law, the postal savings funds deposited at each post office are required to be redeposited in local banks. State and national banks to the number of 7,357 have qualified as depositories for these funds. Such deposits are secured by bonds aggregating $54 million. Of this amount, $37 million represents municipal bonds. In several messages, I have favored and recommended the adoption of a system of parcel post. In the Postal Appropriation Act of last year, a general system was provided, and its installation was directed by the 1st of January. This has entailed upon the Post Office Department a great deal of very heavy labor, but the Postmaster General informs me that on the date selected, to wit, the 1st of January, near at hand, the Department will be in readiness to meet successfully the requirements of the public. A trial during the past three years, of the system of classifying fourth-class postmasters in that part of the country, lying between the Mississippi River on the west, Canada on the north, and the Atlantic Ocean on the east, and Mason and Dixon's line on the south, has been sufficiently satisfactory to justify the postal authorities in recommending the extension of the order to include all the fourth-class postmasters in the country. In September 1912, upon the suggestion of the Postmaster General, I directed him to prepare an order which should put the system in effect, except in Alaska, Guam, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Samoa. Under date of October 15, I issued such an order which affected 36,000 postmasters. By the order, the post offices were divided into Groups A and B. Group A includes all postmasters whose compensation is $500 or more, and Group B, those whose compensation is less than that sum. Different methods are pursued in the selection of the postmasters for Group A and Group B. Criticism has been made of this order on the ground 
that the motive for it was political. Nothing could be further from the truth. The order was made before the election, and in the interest of efficient public service. I have several times requested Congress to give me authority to put first, second, and third-class postmasters, and all other local officers, including internal revenue officers, customs officers, United States Marshals, and the local agents of the other departments under the classification of the civil service law, by taking away the necessity for confirming such appointments by the Senate. I deeply regret the failure of Congress to follow these recommendations. The change would have taken out of politics practically every local officer, and would have entirely cured the evils growing out of what, under the present law, must always remain a remnant of the spoils system. It is expected that the establishment of a parcel post on January 1st will largely increase the amount of mail matter to be transported by the railways, and Congress should be prompt to provide a way by which they may receive the additional compensation to which they will be entitled. The Postmaster General urges that the Department's plan for a complete readjustment of the system of paying the railways for carrying the mails be adopted, substituting space for weight as the principal factor in fixing compensation. Under this plan, it will be possible to determine without delay what additional payment should be made on account of the parcel post. The Postmaster General's recommendation is based on the results of a far-reaching investigation, begun early in the administration, with the object of determining what it costs the railways to carry the mails. The statistics obtained during the course of the inquiry show that while many of the railways and particularly the large systems were making profits from mail transportations, certain of the lines were actually carrying the mails at a loss. As a result of the investigation, the department, after giving the subject careful consideration, decided to urge the abandonment of the present plan of fixing compensation on the basis of the weight of the mails carried a plan that has proved to be exceedingly expensive and in other respects unsatisfactory. Under the method proposed, the railway companies will annually submit to the department reports showing what it costs them to carry the mails, and this cost will be apportioned on the basis of the car space engaged, payment to be allowed at the rate thus determined in amounts that will cover the cost and a reasonable profit. If a railway is not satisfied with the manner in which the department apportions the cost in fixing compensation, it is to have the right, under the new plan, of appealing to the Interstate Commerce Commission. This feature of the proposed law would seem to ensure a fair treatment of the railways. It is hoped that Congress will give the matter immediate attention, and that the method of compensation recommended by the department or some other suitable plan will be promptly authorized. The Interior Department, in the problems of administration included with its jurisdiction, presents more difficult questions than any other. This has been due, perhaps, to temporary causes of a political character, but more especially to the inherent difficulty in the performance of some of the functions which are assigned to it. Its chief duty is the guardianship of the public domain, and the disposition of that domain to private ownership under homestead, mining, and other laws 
by which patents from the government to the individual are authorized on certain conditions. During the last decade, the public seemed to become suddenly aware that a very large part of its domain has passed from its control into private ownership, under laws not well adapted to modern conditions, and also that, in the doing of this, the provisions of existing law and regulations, adopted in accordance with the law, had not been strictly observed, and that in the transfer of title, much fraud had intervened, to the pecuniary benefit of dishonest persons. There arose thereupon a demand for conservation of the public domain, its protection against fraudulent diminution, and the preservation of that part of it from private acquisition, which it seemed necessary to keep for future public use. The movement, excellent in the intention which prompted it, and useful in its results, has nevertheless had some bad effects which the Western country has recently been feeling, and in respect of which there is danger of a reaction toward older abuses, unless we can attain the golden mean, which consists in the prevention of the mere exploitation of the public domain for private purposes, while at the same time facilitating its development for the benefit of the local public. The land laws need complete revision to secure proper conservation on the one hand of land that ought to be kept in public use, and on the other hand, prompt disposition of those lands which ought to be disposed in private ownership or turned over to private use by properly guarded leases. In addition to this, there are not enough officials in our land department with legal knowledge sufficient promptly to make the decisions which are called for. The whole land laws system should be reorganized, and not until it is reorganized will decisions be made as promptly as they ought, or will men who have earned title to public land under the statute receive their patents within a reasonably short period. The present administration has done what it could in this regard, but the necessity for reform and change by revision of the laws and an increase and reorganization of the force remains, and I submit to Congress the wisdom of a full examination of this subject, in order that a very large and important part of our people in the West may be relieved from a just cause of irritation. I invite your attention to the discussion by the Secretary of the Interior of the need for legislation with respect to mining claims, leases of coal lands in this country and in Alaska, and for similar disposition of oil, phosphate, and potash lands, and also to his discussion of the proper use to be made of water power sites held by the government. Many of these lands are now being withheld from use by the public, under the General Withdrawal Act, which was passed by the last Congress. The Act was not for the purpose of disposing of the question, but it was for the purpose of preserving the lands until the question could be solved. I earnestly urge that the matter is of the highest importance to our Western fellow citizens, and ought to command the immediate attention of the legislative branch of the government. Another function which the Interior Department has to perform is that of the guardianship of Indians. In spite of everything which has been said in criticism of the policy of our government toward the Indians, the amount of wealth which is now held by it for these wards per capita shows that the government 
has been generous, but the management of so large an estate, with the great variety of circumstances that surround each tribe and each case, calls for the exercise of the highest business discretion, and the machinery provided in the Indian Bureau for the discharge of this function is entirely inadequate. The position of Indian Commissioner demands the exercise of business ability of the first order, and it is difficult to secure such talent for the salary provided. The condition of health of the Indian and the prevalence in the tribes of curable diseases has been exploited recently in the press. In a message to Congress at its last session, I brought this subject to its attention and invited a special appropriation in order that our facilities for overcoming diseases among the Indians might be properly increased. But no action was then taken by Congress on the subject, nor has such appropriation been made since. The commission appointed by the authority of the Congress to report on proper method of securing railroad development in Alaska is formulating its report, and I expect to have an opportunity before the end of the session to submit its recommendations. The far-reaching utility of the educational system carried on by the Department of Agriculture for the benefit of the farmers of our country calls for no elaboration. Each year there is a growth in the variety of facts which it brings out for the benefit of the farmer, and each year confirms the wisdom of the expenditure of the appropriations made for that department. The Department of Agriculture is charged with the execution of the Pure Food Law. The passage of this encountered much opposition from manufacturers and others who feared the effects upon their business of the enforcement of its provisions. The opposition aroused the just indignation of the public and led to an intense sympathy with the severe and rigid enforcement of the provisions of the new law. It had to deal in many instances with the question whether or not products of large business enterprises in the form of food preparations were deleterious to the public health, and while in a great majority of instances this issue was easily determinable, there were not a few cases in which it was hard to draw the line between a useful and a harmful food preparation. In cases like this, when a decision involved the destruction of great business enterprises, representing the investment of large capital and the expenditure of great energy and ability, the danger of serious injustice was very considerable in the enforcement of a new law under the spur of great public indignation. The public officials charged with executing the law might do injustice in heated controversy through unconscious pride of opinion and obstinacy of conclusion. For this reason, President Roosevelt felt justified in creating a board of experts, known as the Remsen Board, to whom, in cases of much importance, an appeal might be taken and a review had of a decision of the Bureau of Chemistry in the Agricultural Department. I heartily agree that it was wise to create this board in order that injustice might not be done. The questions which arise are not generally those involving palpable injury to health but they are upon the narrow and doubtful line in respect of which it is better to be in some error not dangerous than to be radically destructive. I think that the time has come for Congress to recognize the necessity for some such tribunal of appeal, 
and to make specific statutory provision for it. While we are struggling to suppress an evil of great proportions like that of impure food, we must provide machinery in the law itself to prevent its becoming an instrument of oppression, and we ought to enable those whose business is threatened with annihilation to have some tribunal and some form of appeal in which they have a complete day in court. I referred in my first message to the question of improving the system of agricultural credits. The Secretary of Agriculture has made an investigation into the matter of credits in this country, and I commend a consideration of the information which, through his agents, he has been able to collect. It does not in any way minimize the importance of the proposal, but it gives more accurate information upon some of the phases of the question than we have heretofore had. I commend to Congress an examination of the report of the Secretary of Commerce and Labor, and especially that part in which he discusses the Office of the Bureau of Corporations, the value to commerce of a proposed trade commission, and the steps which he has taken to secure the organization of a National Chamber of Commerce. I heartily commend his view that the plan of a trade commission, which looks to the fixing of prices, is altogether impractical and ought not for a moment to be considered as a possible solution of the trust question. The trust question in the enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Law is gradually solving itself, is maintaining the principle and restoring the practice of competition, and if the law is quietly but firmly enforced, business will adjust itself to the statutory requirements, and the unrest in commercial circles provoked by the trust discussion will disappear. In conformity with a joint resolution of Congress, an executive proclamation was issued last February inviting the nations of the world to participate in the Panama Pacific International Exposition to be held at San Francisco to celebrate the construction of the Panama Canal. A sympathetic response was immediately forthcoming, and several nations have already selected the sites for their buildings. In furtherance of my invitation, a special commission visited European countries during the past summer and received assurance of hearty cooperation in the task of bringing together a universal industrial, military, and naval display on an unprecedented scale. It is evident that the exposition will be an accurate mirror of the world's activities, as they appear 400 years after the date of the discovery of the Pacific Ocean. It is the duty of the United States to make the nations welcome at San Francisco and to facilitate such acquaintance between them and ourselves as will promote the expansion of commerce and familiarize the world with the new trade route through the Panama Canal. The action of the state governments and individuals assures a comprehensive exhibit of the resources of this country and of the progress of the people. This participation by state and individuals should be supplemented by an adequate showing of the varied and unique activities of the national government. The United States cannot with good grace invite foreign governments to erect buildings and make expensive exhibits while itself refusing to participate, nor would it be wise to forego the opportunity to join with other nations in the inspiring interchange of ideas tending to promote intercourse, friendship, and commerce. It is the duty of the government to foster and build up commerce through the canal just as it was the duty of the government 
to construct it. I earnestly recommend the appropriation at this session of such a sum as will enable the United States to construct a suitable building, install a governmental exhibit, and otherwise participate in the Panama Pacific International Exposition in a manner commensurate with the dignity of a nation whose guests are to be the people of the world. I recommend also such legislation as will facilitate the entry of material intended for exhibition and protect foreign exhibitors against infringement of patents and the unauthorized copying of patterns and designs. All aliens sent to San Francisco to construct and care for foreign buildings and exhibits should be admitted without restraint or embarrassment. The city of Washington is a beautiful city with a population of 352,936, of whom 98,667 are colored. The annual municipal budget is about $14 million. The presence of the national capital and other governmental structures constitutes the chief beauty and interest of the city. The public grounds are extensive, and the opportunities for improving the city and making it still more attractive are very great. Under a plan adopted some years ago, one-half the cost of running the city is paid by taxation upon the property, real and personal, of the citizens and residents, and the other half is borne by the general government. The city is expanding at a remarkable rate, and this can only be accounted for by the coming here from other parts of the country of well-to-do people, who, having finished their business careers elsewhere, build and make this their permanent place of residence. On the whole, the city as a municipality is very well governed. It is well lighted. The water supply is good. The streets are well paved. The police force is well disciplined. Crime is not flagrant. And while it has purlieus and centers of vice, like other large cities, they are not exploited. They do not exercise an influence or control in the government of the city, and they are suppressed in as far as it has been found practicable. Municipal graft is inconsiderable. There are interior courts in the city that are noisome and centers of disease and the refuge of criminals, but Congress has begun to clean these out and progress has been made in the case of the most notorious of these, which is known as Willow Tree Alley. This movement should continue. The mortality for the past year was at the rate of 17.8 per 1,000 of both races. Among the whites, it was 14.61 per 1,000, and among the blacks, 26.12 per 1,000. These are the lowest mortality rates ever recorded in the district. One of the most crying needs in the government of the district is a tribunal or public authority for the purpose of supervising the corporations engaged in the operation of public utilities. Such a bill is pending in Congress and ought to pass. Washington should show itself under the direction of Congress to be a city with a model form of government, but as long as such authority over public utilities is withheld from the municipal government, it must always be defective. Without undue criticism of the present street railway accommodations, it can truly be said that under the spur of a public utilities commission, they might be substantially improved. 
While the school system of Washington perhaps might be bettered in the economy of its management and the distribution of its buildings, its usefulness has nevertheless greatly increased in recent years, and it now offers excellent facilities for a primary and secondary education. From time to time, there is considerable agitation in Washington in favor of granting the citizens of the city the franchise and constituting an elective government. I am strongly opposed to this change. The history of Washington discloses a number of experiments of this kind, which have always been abandoned as unsatisfactory. The truth is this is a city governed by a popular body, to wit, the Congress of the United States, selected from the people of the United States who own Washington. The people who come here to live do so with the knowledge of the origin of the city and the restrictions, and therefore voluntarily give up the privilege of living in a municipality governed by popular vote. Washington is so unique in its origin, and in its use for housing and localizing the sovereignty of the nation, that the people who live here must regard its peculiar character and must be content to subject themselves to the control of a body selected by all the people of the nation. I agree that there are certain inconveniences growing out of the government of a city by a national legislature like Congress, and it would perhaps be possible to lessen these by the delegation by Congress to the district commissioners of greater legislative power for the enactment of local laws than they now possess, especially those of a police character. Every loyal American has a personal pride in the beauty of Washington and its development and growth. There is no one with a proper appreciation of our capital city who would favor a niggardly policy in respect to expenditures from the National Treasury to add to the attractiveness of the city, which belongs to every citizen of the entire country, and which no citizen visits without a sense of pride of ownership. We have restored by a commission of fine arts, at the instance of a committee of the Senate, the original plan of the French engineer L'Enfant for the city of Washington, and we know with great certainty the course which the improvement of Washington should take. Why should there be delay in making this improvement, insofar as it involves the extension of the parking system and the construction of greatly needed public buildings? Appropriate buildings for the State Department, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Commerce and Labor have been projected, plans have been approved, and nothing is wanting but the appropriations for the beginning and completion of the structures. A hall of archives is also badly needed, but nothing has been done toward its construction, although the land for it has long been bought and paid for. Plans have also been made for the Union of Potomac Park, with the Valley of Rock Creek and Rock Creek Park, and the necessity for the connection between the soldiers' home and Rock Creek Park calls for no comment. I ask again why there should be delay in carrying out these plans. We have the money in the Treasury, the plans are national in their scope, and the improvement should be treated as a national project. The plan will find a hearty approval throughout the country. I am quite sure, from the information which I have, that, at comparatively small expense, from that part of the District of Columbia which was retroceded to Virginia, the portion including the Arlington Estate, Fort Myer, and the Palisades of the Potomac can be acquired by purchase and the jurisdiction of the state of Virginia over this land ceded to the nation. This ought to be done. The construction of the Lincoln Memorial 
and of a memorial bridge from the base of the Lincoln Monument to Arlington would be an appropriate and symbolic expression of the union of the North and the South at the capital of the nation. I urge upon Congress the appointment of a commission to undertake these national improvements and to submit a plan for their execution. And when the plan has been submitted and approved and the work carried out, Washington will really become what it ought to be, the most beautiful city in the world. End of State of the Union Addresses, 1909-1912